Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. Welcome to episode six of Plan B Security. I'm going to take this one a little bit slower than normal. It's been a long week and I am exhausted. Now for this episode, I am going to try to stress some of the importances around multi-factor authentication, also known as MFA. Another way of putting it is that 2SV or two-step verification or 2FA or for second factor authentication. But before we go down that rabbit hole, let's think about this one a little bit more from a detached lens. So we're going to detach ourselves, zoom out 10,000 feet, and we're going to think about more of just the intrinsic problem that exists here. So let's start with the web example. You log into a website, but before you can, you have to create an account. So normally that includes creating a username, your password, probably providing your email address and a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, what happens on the back end, 99% of the time, what should happen is they take that password that you provide them. They do one way hashing of that, meaning that you can't necessarily reverse the algorithm that you used on that piece of information that you provided it. And instead, actually, you would need that same piece of information, run it through the same algorithm, and you'll always get the same response. So that's how you sort of do this more of a hashing approach. It's not encryption and decryption because you should never encrypt or decrypt something that's like a, a secure credential like that. And why does this matter? Because if you were a developer, what you would actually do is you would take a form, let's just say a username and a password form, and the username can be a random username that you generated or an email address. And you would literally just say, hey, select from the database the username or email address matches the username and email address form that somebody filled out. And then you're going to take the password that they submitted. You're going to do that one way hash with it. And then you're going to say where the passwords match. And that becomes essentially a true. And if it's a true, then they'll create the session and then you'll be able to log in. So what separates you from an attacker? And really, at the end of the day, it's just intent. There's no way for these web services or a computer or anything like that to really know that that's not you. They expect it to be you because you knew that information. You knew both the username and the password. So this is where multi-factor authentication really comes in and starts to shine. It says, hey, now you need to do an extra level of verification, and that's going to be something that you have. And that's why you'll always see something like these TOTP codes or time-based one-time passwords, which is, you know, the, the long nerdy way of saying that. And that's going to be like those six or eight digit codes, depending on which algorithm they're using to generate those. Uh, or it could be a text message, or it could be uh, a prompt that you have to click in a mobile application that's already installed on your phone that you did through an enrollment process. There's a lot of different ways of really doing it. Now, the big thing I do have to stress is that these are not all created equally. There are some that are really good and some that are really bad. And one of the things I want to do throughout this episode is kind of dig into a little bit of those. Now, let's think about this from a different perspective even more, right? So how many people here that are listening, you work for an employer who does these phishing tests, right? Um, this is one of the things that I am just, uh, I can't stand when, when I hear people doing these tests. It's like setting your office building on fire and calling it a fire drill, making sure everybody gets out. So what you're really trying to do is you, you're trying as hard as you can as an administrator of these tests to get people to engage with these emails. And as soon as they do, what happens? They're like, oh no, you've been fished. You need more training. You need to, you know, you're going to be in trouble. This is going to go on your performance report. And what does that do? It immediately demoralizes your workforce. 
everybody is going to want to be less productive because they're going to be afraid to engage with any type of email that comes in. Instead, why not protect the account that could be fished by making it non-fishable? And the best way of doing that is with WebAuthn. So time for a trip down memory lane. I love phishing. Social engineering is one of my favorite parts about security in general. And every opportunity I get, I try to, you know, practice my skills. And I, I it's more for fun than anything malicious. But, uh, you know, a couple years ago when I was at one of the things I was trying to do was get some metrics to help with the prioritization of the security program. Now, again, you know, I am not one of the folks that like to, you know, run a uh, phishing campaign and then tell people, hey, you've been fished. You need to go through all this training. Again, it disincentivizes people from engaging with doing their normal day to day work. Instead, it allowed me to understand whoever engaged with it. If there were certain types of groups of folks, I could understand what their workloads were. Is there a certain type of more risky workload that they have access to? Maybe it's like a bunch of Excel files with um, SSNs, social security numbers in them, or maybe bank account informations, or is maybe they're a super administrator account internally that, you know, if they were compromised, then we can get some lateral movement in there. So the whole purpose of this one really was just to get some metric so we knew what to defend against. So I went ahead and I registered this domain called benefits.us waited until just around Thanksgiving time and sent out a mass email to everybody saying, Hey, come get your candy grams. It's the holiday season. Your benefits department paid for a whole bunch of candy grams for all your coworkers, get them for free. Now I probably sat on that domain for a little over a year, you know, if, if not, maybe a little bit longer, just sending some generic random email back and forth just to get it, you know, in the good graces of, of the email gods. The reason this was so important was because it was a valid domain that had valid traffic and we needed to do no configuration on the back end to allow list this email domain for the campaign. So a lot of times what will happen is somebody's like, oh, hey, we're going to send a bunch of phishing emails. Well, then the first thing they're going to do is they're going to allow list it because they don't want their email protections to block it. And then what happens? The, you, people get what they call them butter bars. It's, uh, you know, in, in Microsoft Office 365 and Google Workspace, it's like these bright yellow bars and it says, hey, this this email is unsafe, but it was deemed safe by your administrator. Feel free to interact with it. Well, somebody sees that. What are they? Oh, my administrator says it's OK. Of course I can engage with it. And then you click on the link and it says you've been fished like absolutely not. So it was really important to be as legitimate as possible with the sending domain. That's why I needed something that's been around for a while. And then the other thing is if you caught on candy grams. Telegrams, postage, postmarks, post, parcel, all these different terms are already filtered by a lot of it. And I wanted to try to get as close to possible to make sure that we can get something that like seems legit, but not legit. And th that's one of the words that did not go through, you know, the, the filtering, it did not get flagged, it did not get caught, you know, it passed go and it collected its $200, that's for sure. The last part that really sold this one was the animated GIF. If you see an animated GIF in an email, are you thinking an attacker if it's not skull and crossbones saying you've been pwned? Absolutely not. It, you, you drop those you know awareness shields and you're like, oh, hey, it could be from my benefits department and there's an animated GIF. Absolutely, I'm going to click on whatever this is. But that's not it. If you've ever seen Mean Girls, this scene probably sticks out to you. Glenn Coco? So literally took that piece, turned it into a GIF, added it to the email. And I mean, it was, it, it, it was awesome. I just, 
it was amazing watching the results come in as people started engaging with the email. Literally just sitting there tailing the uh, the access logs from Nginx, just watching them hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. So why am I telling you all this? And it's because the link that was inside the Candy Graham email went to a fake hosted Octopage. I wasn't running Evil Nginx or any of those services like that. It was just a legit, you know, uh, quick little Go app that I wrote that mimicked the Octopage, looked just like the Octopage when you hit the, the product site. And what it would do is it would prompt you for username and password. You'd enter those in. You'd get an interstitial page saying, hey, give me your TOTP code. You would enter in your TOTP code. And then what would happen? I'd have all the information. I'd replay it using the Authent API route from Okta. I had your sessions. I had your account. I had everything that I needed. Now, instead of popping up an email or, you know, whatever saying, hey, you've been fished. You need to go through this training module so, you know, you can protect our company data. No, what we actually did is we turned that into a real life tabletop exercise and everybody that was putting in their username and passwords and their MFAs, we were cycling all that stuff saying, hey, you need to reset your passwords, going through it like it was a real incident. That gave you two pieces of it. You're testing the people, you're testing your processes, you're validating that it's working the way that it, you need to. No better time to do that than when it's completely within your own control. And again, like this really highlighted the fact that just because MFA is on these accounts doesn't mean that it's secure. MFA was just an extra thing that added a little bit extra cost to the attacker. But if I'm sitting there and I'm a motivated attacker, I'm going to come up with ways to, to automate that as much as possible, just like I did with, you know, putting that interstitial page up, getting a TOTP and replaying it within that time frame. Now, it's not just TOTP that has an issue, right? I want you to think a little bit more organic about the solution. An email goes out, somebody clicks on the email, they're being tricked to click on the email, but if it looks like the company's thing, what are they expecting to do? They're expecting to put their username and password into what they're expecting, again, a lot of expectations here, what they're expecting to be the company's, you know, Okta login page or whatever their primary IDP is. You know, I'm not picking on Okta, it's just, one that you know I'm extremely familiar with and have been using for a very long time. So when a victim clicks on this link and they're expecting it to be a login page and it looks like the login page, they're incentivized to want to put their information in. Like that is the psychology of it. There's no getting around that. But something even as simple as, you know, using an Octa Verify type solution where, you know, even with uh, after the Uber attacks, they, um, you know, where they saw this MFA fatigue attack, that's where the credentials were um, already compromised and the attacker just kept replaying the credentials, triggering the MFA flow. And then eventually whoever the target was, you know, said, hey, I'm tired of getting these pop ups on my phone. They just clicked yes. And then the attacker was in. So that's what they call the MFA fatigue attack. Now, to prevent that, what they did is now they're going to pop up a, a number, a random number on the screen, and then you're going to get a random number on your phone. And all you have to do is match it. So if you have a, a well-architected attacker and they're sitting there and they're like, okay, well, now I just know that I need to look for these two numbers and then replay this number that the person's going to be putting into the page because they're expecting to put in the number on the page because it looks like they're a real login page. Well, you're not really protecting much. And where that true security starts to come in at is when we start talking about something like non-fishable MFA. And this is really where I, I know it took about 10 minutes to get to this point, but like it really does take a lot to understand how we got from there to here and why it is such a big difference. 
So the way WebAuth then works is there's a registration and then a validation process. So the first time that you're accessing that, that resource and you haven't accessed it before, um, this can be used in what they call password lists, where there's no more um, you know, password fields. It's just this type of credentialed exchange uh, for validating your account. Or you could use it for multi-factor. So you still have your username, password, and then this you know, multi-factor WebAuthn flow. But regardless, so you would access the service and, and it would say, hey, you know, I don't have a credential for you, so let's go ahead and generate it. And what you're doing is on the local client, so this could be your pass key on your iOS device, this could be Touch ID, Windows Hello, YubiKey, um, Google Titan Keys, whichever ones you decided to use. It's more of like a, a physical hardware type thing that can handle the exchange of credentialed material. So again, we're in the registration flow and it says, hey, you're on this website, let's go ahead and register. So you engage with whatever the factor is, you know, scanning your face ID, touching your touch ID, touching the YubiKey, whichever it is that you need to do. And it's doing a little bit of this, um, you know, key pair exchange. It's then gonna store the domain name alongside this key pair. So in this way, the next time you're on that website, it's gonna present it as a, a valid authentication type credential. And while I did cut out some of the crazy technical stuff that happens in between, I just want to make sure everybody can consume it regardless of their technical level. So now that that's registered, let's go to the attacker flow. So the attacker is going to be running on some random domain that's not where you register that WebAuthn key, meaning that that credential will never be presented to the browser. And for the super technical people listening, absolutely, yes, there's a way to possibly do a man in the middle style attack where you are uh, impersonating maybe like the relaying party and doing, you know, some sort of modified uh, attestation object on the request and, and the response bind. But, you know, that part of the attestation thing, I'd say very unlikely somebody's going to pull that off without you detecting it some other way. And best believe the very first thing as a result of this entire phishing exercise was to roll out WebAuthn everywhere. And, you know, after some time passed, you always want to go back and, you know, test things again, see if there's any, you know, improvement. Is there progress? Is there a regression somewhere? And it left me asking Give me back because I couldn't get in using the same technique. But that's a story for another day. Now, before I throw that fish back to the sea, I just want to shout out to everybody. Uh, you know, you know who you are. I really appreciated, you know, having that opportunity a couple of years ago to, to run through that. It was an absolute blast. One of the highlights of my career. And, you know, in 2018, we actually got to talk about that one at RSA under the talk name Redfish Bluefish. Now, what's an episode of Plan B Security without having some sort of reference to the office? And I'd say, you know, I was thinking about what my next, you know, fishing opportunity or social engineering opportunity would be. And really all it takes is just finding something that makes somebody excited. And, you know, you know what Pam Beasley said. Once a year they bring in a little cart and they give away free pretzels. It's really not a big deal. To some people it is. And honestly, all it takes is that one person. But before we send you on your way, there are a few current events related to MFA to kind of just bring your awareness to how much of a big deal this is. So the first one is there is a company called Retool and their whole thing is, you know, they take your database and they pretty much build an interface on top of it and it streamlines the ability for you to, you know, build applications and make it accessible. What they experienced was a social engineering attack that was um, revolved around SMS phishing, a social engineering, which then managed to steal their login credentials for an Okta account belonging to an IT employee. And then long story short, they started blaming Google for their Google Authenticator tool because it stored all the MFA tokens um, behind each one of those TOTP codes is what they call a secret. 
storing those secrets up in, in Google. So if the attacker was able to get access to the employee's Google account, they'd have access to these credentials. And they're like, well, why would you sync these in the first place? Mind you, that's the number one functionality that people have been requesting for at least the past 10 years to be added to Google Authenticator. Because every time you change a device, you have to reset your MFA. And now you have to like worry about validating people or who they say they are when they you know get a new device. And every Christmas time, uh, especially every other holiday where gifts are being given, everybody in IT knows the number one thing that happens is people get new phones and it, it just, it's an absolute nightmare. So my question would be, why wasn't there that extra layer of protection for hardware-based MFA, like WebAuthn, in front of Google, protecting those secrets? Not every vendor, not every application, not every service, not every, not everything supports WebAuthn as a multi-factor authentication method. So you're still going to have some of these more, what I'm going to call now legacy, because uh, WebAuthn has been out for several years now. Um, but if, you know, it does support TOTP, it's, it's on you to make sure that you're protecting those secrets as much as possible. While at the same time, from the business risk side, you have to make sure that they are being recorded somewhere, like a 1Password, a LastPass, your Google Authenticator. So then that way, you know, if something, you know, the hit by the bus test, you know, if one of your IT people gets hit by a bus, how do you make sure that you're not losing access to some of these accounts, especially if they're the ones with the super admin credentials? So, you know, it, it does take a lot more planning, a lot more architecture. It's not just copy, paste, click, click, click. There's a lot more planning and thinking that needs to go into some of these things. Now, also in the news is, you know, you might have heard about the MGM. So MGM is a uh, hotel and casino chain from Las Vegas. And, you know, they're pretty much worldwide now. Um, they had a huge incident with uh, social engineering. And, you know, from what I read, there was also a little piece about where they used LinkedIn to stalk an employee. And then they used some AI stuff in order to impersonate them. And, you know, through all that, they were able to, to compromise the account and then they were able to get some access into Okta and Azure. And then there's some stuff about a uh, sync client between Active Directory and Okta. So it's just big nightmare. And then uh, eventually that ended up leading to some ransomware that got deployed. Now, what this really goes into is, you know, WebAuthn, I'm talking about how great and everything it is, but it still is only as good as some of your policies you put in place as a company. So what I mean by that is, let's say somebody calls into the help desk and, you know, they're pretending to be an employee. Um, the credentials were already leaked in some other, you know, data leak from another service because they're reusing their password because who wants to keep track of a million different passwords? And, you know, they're like, hey, you know, I lost my phone. Uh, I need MFA reset. And the IT employee just goes ahead and resets it. Well, that's no dice because what's going to end up happening is now the attacker just had the MFA reset. Now, when they use the credentials that they're replaying from that other attack, they're going to be able to enroll their WebAuthn authenticator. I will stress, these security controls are only as good as your policies and the ability for your staff to follow them. So make sure that you have some sort of identity verification process in place. And, you know, that could be something like, hey, let's jump on a Zoom. Let me make sure that you are who you say you are. I need you to come up to the, you know, a service desk or, you know, if you're in the office come up, you know, show me your ID, you know, put your ID, you know, in, in your hand next to your face, uh, show me your passport, things like that. I know people don't really like that, but that's sometimes depending on the criticality of the system that you're, you know, you're operating or you're trying to defend, uh, and also the risk tolerance level of the entire business, you know, you may want to go as far as that level of detail in your policy. And one last thing that popped up in the news was a uh, SEC 8K filing from Caesars Entertainment, 
which is the hotel and casino um, from Vegas as well. Uh, and they had something where one of their IT support vendors, uh, which is an outsourced company, did suffer a um, social engineering attack, which then led to one of their customer loyalty databases from being uh, compromised, uh, obtained. And that include things like driver's license numbers, social security numbers, and they're reaching out to everybody that was involved. Uh, and that one came out as recently as September 7th. Uh, 2023. Let me add the date just in case uh, somebody's reading this in in the future. So, you know, these things will keep happening. They're not going to stop. And the easier that we allow them as defenders and security professionals to, you know, take advantage of these systems and find weaknesses in our systems, you know, they're going to exploit that. So put your attacker hat on and pretend to be these folks. Find ways that you can come up with risks and mitigations for them before they do. Otherwise, it's just a gamble with your customers' data and financials. Don't play that game. Thank you so much for tuning in for this week's episode of MFA. Thanks for bearing with me. Like I said, it's been a long, exhausting week. I wanted to make sure that I tossed this together, but I'm already getting excited for next week's episode, which will talk about device trust, or what most companies should probably be calling device verification. And if you tune in next week, you'll understand what I mean by that. And with that... Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Plan B Security with me, Mike McIntosh.